0: So uh this morning I have the privilege of uh inviting up a, a good friend of mine, Scott Ellison. Uh we've known each other for several years now and we're we would like to call each other co laborers for the gospel. That is in fact what we are. Um Scott lives in Anger, been married to Tammy for sixteen years, they're mom and dad to five. So you know they've been battle tested, right? <laughs> So they're good folks. They live here in town, got five kids, and he even wrote down one dog and one Ford truck. So, I mean, they're just down-to-earth people, obviously, obviously there. Uh, but, um, yeah, he's just a good friend of mine, and, and he agreed to come on this Sunday and to uh, share the word of the Lord with us. So I want to pray for our time, for, for God to speak through him, and for our hearts as we sit here over the next little bit. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much again for this morning. All we have done this morning is praise you Um, Lord, and we give you all the thanks. We give you all the credit. We give you all the glory, all the praise, Lord, for, for everything in our lives individually, for everything as a church, collectively, Lord, for everything that you're doing in and through Anthem, Lord. And I go ahead and give you praise for this morning and what you're about to do over the next little bit, Lord, where your word will be shared and preached. And I ask that you would use, Scott, in a profound way for all of us, Lord, wherever we are, whoever we are, regardless of the week that we've had. Lord, despite what we think of church and religion and Jesus, Lord, this morning may we all be affected in a very real way. May you convince us by your spirit and the preaching of your word. And and use, Scott, this morning to do do that for all of us. Lord, we commend this time our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks, brother. Well, I'm glad to be with you uh, this morning. If you would, um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and make your way to Matthew's Gospel chapter 9. And it's always a, uh, a pleasure to be with you folks. I have great respect for your leadership team here at Anthem and um, continue to cheer you guys on as you labor here in the town of Anger faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I also have tremendous respect, while you're turning there, I'll just tell you a quick uh, a quick story. So um, I've known Rick and Brent and, and Jimmy for some time, just met Joey today, really thankful to know those brothers. Um, I met Justin, is he in here? Okay, he's teaching the kids. So, well, good, that's probably good that I can tell a story about him. Um, so... I met Justin in an interesting way. We were playing um, a football game in Fuquay, Verena, kind of a Thanksgiving Day bowl where a bunch of guys who are way too old to be doing this um, lived our, our young lives again. And so we got together, got some flags and played flag football. And I'll never forget, I was on the opposing team as Justin and um, they were, um, we were going out for a pass and I was running a pass route And I saw a friend of mine who's in his mid-50s coming as hard as he could come across the field. And then I saw, and if anyone knows Justin, I saw Big Justin. And he was going as hard as he could go, and they were both watching the ball. And I don't know if you know anything about football, but that's what you're supposed to do. Um, They both did exactly what they were supposed to do. They kept their eyes on the ball, but there's one problem with that. And you know where I'm going. They collided at astronomical speed. Um, the, the shake was, I mean, I thought I felt it in the earth when Justin hit this guy, and I really thought my buddy Gary was just dead, so Justin just rolls over, gets up, and is like, Let's, where's the next play, and I'm thinking, my buddy's dead, but anyway, so that was how I met Justin, but we've gotten to know each other a, a little bit better, and I know he's a faithful brother here, um, laboring with you guys, so you're very blessed to have the leadership team you have, um, what I'd like to do is that my, my task this morning is to, to continue um, walking with you through a series that I have not been fully privy to. Um, so, um, show me some grace in that and don't judge the church by uh, my sermon today. They have much better teaching on an ongoing basis maybe than you'll get today. Um, but anyhow, uh, Matthew chapter 9, you guys have been looking at the topic of compassion. Um, this is uh, Compassion has obviously already been defined for you and I don't want to rehash that. But Jesus Christ brings a kingdom of compassion. Um, He does not bring just another religion to the forefront. There are many of those in the earth, even by the time Christ comes. There are many religions, but He brings a kingdom of compassion, a kingdom of mercy, a kingdom that is defined um, by boundaries that no religion had been defined by before, at least not in any kind of lasting, powerful way, because He will bring compassion. And he will move people to act with compassion, with such power that they will give their own lives for others, sometimes giving their own lives for people they don't even know. Um, so Jesus brings and ushers in this compassion. Let's read the text, and I'm going to start in verse 9, um, just for context's sake, and read through verse 17, and then we'll dive in to the, to the content here this morning. As Jesus went on from there, verse 9, Matthew chapter 9, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, speaking of Matthew, got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, uh, behold, many tax collectors, some more of Matthew's buddies, and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, is it not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick? It's not those who are healthy, but those who are sick who need the physician. Verse 13. Now, here is a verse I want you to pay attention to. Everything hinges on this verse in this chapter. But go and learn what this means, Jesus says. I desire Compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Now, here's our set of verses we're going to look at this morning. Then, then, the disciples of John, speaking of John the Baptist, by the way, then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do the Pharisees fast? Uh, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, uh, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst And the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. So I know what you're thinking right now, and that's, wow, what an easy set of verses (laughs) to work our way through. No, um, there'll be a challenge, but we'll work our way through those, and hopefully you'll have a good grasp of what these have to do um, with the kingdom, this kingdom of compassion um, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we do that, let me just introduce... Um, this subject to you by reminding you Maybe some of you saw this in the news this week um, But a 93 year old Nazi SS guard Oscar Groening, Maybe some of you heard about this um, Was standing in a German court um, later, th- uh, Earlier this week Maybe the late last week I forget the date exactly And he confessed his guilt um, To his role as the bookkeeper Of the infamous Auschwitz concentration camp um, he's still alive, and he was the bookkeeper there at that camp. Um, three, he's charged with 300,000 counts of accessory to murder. 300,000. What happened at Auschwitz is not, um, is not um, isolated. This happened at many concentration camps during the World War um, under the Nazi regime. Um, one of the greatest human atrocities probably of human existence. Um, but 300,000 of the Jewish people were killed while he was serving as the bookkeeper of that camp. And so those are the charges he was facing. But that's, um, that's not surprising, you know that from history. What's surprising is a 93-year-old man can't go to his death yet because he wants to be forgiven. He stands in front of the courtroom and he says to them, I am guilty, I am guilty under the moral law, I have done wrong. I, I stood by and watched that happen and even helped in some ways while these 300,000 souls um, were extinguished from the earth. And he turns to some of his um, surviving victims, some Jewish people that are testifying in the courtroom, and he says, please, what I ask for you is to forgive me. He's seeking forgiveness. This guy is asking for compassion, isn't he? He, He's the exact opposite of what compassion is. He, He hasn't sacrificed for anyone. Uh, what he would do as a, as a bookkeeper um, at the camp uh, is, is as the Jews were brought in on cattle cars um, He would take the money, steal it out of their pockets And out of their garments and out of their handbags And out of their suitcases And he would, he would count the money and tally it up And then send it to Berlin for the, for the Nazi calls. Now why do I tell you this sad story to start off This sermon this morning on compassion Well, in one way, because he's the opposite of compassion, but in another way, he's seeking forgiveness. He's exactly the kind of guy that Jesus is feasting with when the Pharisees come to him and say, why aren't you fasting, and instead you're feasting? Uh, This is the kind of guy. uh, Maybe you think I'm making this up, and that's why I read the earlier verses. Matthew is a tax collector. He tallies the money. Uh, Listen to this, as if if it couldn't get any worse. Matthew is a Jew who is a tax collector for the Roman government, who's really an enemy of the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. You could look at it like this. Matthew is like a a Jewish um, bookkeeper for the Nazis. And as his brothers and sisters are brought into the concentration camp, Matthew's the kind of guy who's taking the money. And he's joyfully keeping a little for himself and sending some to Berlin. This is the kind of guy that Jesus is eating with. Do you see the accusation as is fair, isn't it? The people are seeing this and they're wondering, what in the world? We thought you were a great religious teacher. You're the one promised from God, and yet you're feasting when you should be fasting, and you're feasting with sinners and tax collectors. These are the scum of the earth. And that's the scene that's going on when Jesus is asked the question in verse 14 why do your disciples not fast? And in that question lies why don't you fast? Well, there's a lot going on here. The first thing I want to look at this morning, if you're taking notes, is very simply the question posed, why don't your disciples fast? Um, You've got to understand a couple things about the culture in order to understand what's being asked here. It's really a loaded question. Um, It is a shotgun question that's being asked here. You see, there is really only one commanded fast in all of Scripture. Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. It's the day when the, the Jewish people would gather and they would confess their sins. Sins as a uh, personal sins and sins of the nation. They would come together. It's a huge day and they would fast. And in um, Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 and 30, it says, This shall be a permanent statue for you. In the seventh month of the tenth day of the month, you shall humble yourselves and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day, the day of atonement, that atonement should be made for you, to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Here's the phrase in verse 29 you need to pick up on. You shall humble your souls. In the Hebrew, you would understand, you'd be able to see that that phrase is a phrase that imposes the idea of fasting. To humble one's soul is to afflict oneself in the Hebrew. And so what he's saying here, when he says to humble your soul, it, it always, then in Jewish time, and then throughout tradition, they carried out that to inflict afflict oneself was to fast. It was to, to not eat food. And so that's the only place in Scripture that fasting is commanded. But guess what? The Pharisees, the Jewish people, the rabbis, they figured if it's good one time a year, it's good twice a week. And so they established tons of fasts. And they fast every week at least twice and sometimes more. And they begin to make these man-made laws of how one can be righteous and spiritual. And they build this entire man-made religion that has very little to do with the Scriptures. And so Jesus, in fact, could support the fast on the Day of Atonement when we're called to humble our souls. But he would not submit himself to the Pharisees' fasting. This says a lot about the Lord Jesus and a lot about his kingdom of compassion that he's bringing. Jesus is ushering in a new religion altogether, and that's what this verse, these verses we're looking at today is going, are going to spell out for us. It's not just the same old thing that's going to have a patch put over it. It's not the same old thing you're going to pour into the same old forms of religion. Jesus is bringing something new, something fresh, and the Pharisees cannot handle it. So this, this fasting that was happening culturally as a religious ritual, a ceremony that, that the Pharisees are doing at least twice a week, it is most likely on one of these fast days that the disciples come to him and ask him this question. And the reason they ask him the question is because he was just feasting when he should have been fasting. You see what's going on? So the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples are saying, what's going on? He's supposed to be righteous. He's supposed to be the leader of what is, what is spiritual. And yet he's not fasting. He's in there feasting with tax collectors and sinners. And so their question is valid. The problem is Jesus refused. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus refuses to bow to man-made religion. He refuses to... to, to Uh, To pour his new kingdom Into their old forms of worship and religion He won't do it He actually rebuked them earlier In the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 16 I'm sorry Matthew chapter 6 verse 16 Listen to what he says Whenever you fast Do not put on a gloomy face As the hypocrites do For they neglect their appearance So that they will be noticed by men When they are fasting Do you see why they were fasting? They wanted to be noticed for it They wanted to be respected And he says, truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret what is done in secret will reward you. Turn back to Matthew chapter 9. So already Jesus has rebuked these religious teachers by saying, you fast for the wrong reasons. Uh, the reason we would one would fast, and the reason God commanded the fast in the book of Leviticus was to turn away from strengthening our flesh and turn to God to draw near to Him. And so, fasting is a way of getting our attention. Right? When you're super, super hungry, can you think of anything else? Right? Like your your stomach's just, rawr, rawr, you know, feed me, and you're and, and you're trying to think like, okay, quit thinking about that. I got to do this or some of you probably the only time you've ever fasted Is when you have to go to the doctor And have your, your blood work done And that's okay um, but, but even then you know what it means to be hungry right? And you can't think and, and so there's this spiritual discipline That the rabbis were practicing Where they would not eat So that they could draw near to God No they weren't trying to draw near to God They would decide to not eat And be hungry to show how spiritually strong they were They would even Dishuffle themselves And make sure everybody knew Hey I'm fasting. And so it's like inviting people to lunch. Hey, Rick, you want to go to lunch? And then we go out, and I've invited him, and w- he orders a, a bunch of food, and the waitress says, what would you like? And I say, oh, no, 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 not me today. I'm fasting. And Rick's like, you invited me to lunch. Like, what in the world? Why would you invite me to lunch and fast? And that's the kinds of things these men are doing to exalt themselves and to feel spiritual and to feel godly, and Jesus will have nothing, nothing at all to do with it. They were trusting in man made religion to make themselves right with God. Man made religion will not save you, and I don't care what the religion is. I wonder if you have trusted in any tradition to save you. I wonder if, even this morning, um, any of you are in here thinking that praying and giving to the poor, and doing what your parents taught you to do, attending church services, that that keeps you in good standing with God. I wonder if you're trusting in that. That's the kind of things the Pharisees were doing, but here's the deal. Let us hear this warning this morning from the Lord Jesus when he answers the question about fasting, that God desires a change of heart, not greater religious devotion. God's looking at the heart. God can see your heart. And God wants worship from the heart. And that's what the Pharisees refused to do. They, would, they didn't want God to see their heart, and they didn't want to think about that. They thought outward conformity would bring inward spirituality, and it wouldn't happen. You see, Jesus brings a kingdom and a gospel and good news that says it's in fact inward transformation that will bring outward transformation. It has to start in the heart. The Pharisees missed the point of fasting. The point of fasting was not to eat so that you could turn your heart towards God, so that you could get into the presence of God, so you could stop thinking about worldly things and worldly needs and turn to God. But no, they didn't do that. You see, sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice does not satisfy the human soul. It won't. You'll never give enough money. You'll never attend enough church. You'll never pray enough prayers to be happy without Christ. It's empty religion. You see, that, that's where verse 13 came into play. It's why I wanted to read it, where, where Jesus says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I came to call not the righteous, the outwardly guys who are concerned about the outward outward instead of the inward. I didn't call to I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. People who beat upon their chest and say, God, woe is me. A sinner. I need your grace, Lord. I need your help. I know that people um, don't think I'm that bad, but God, you know my faults. You know my heart. Cleanse me, O oh God. You see, when Jesus said that God desires compassion and not sacrifice, he was saying God desires an inward transformation, not an outward conformity. See, outward conformity without inward transformation is religion, and it is dead. And it is sand in your mouth. It will never satisfy. The problem, by the way, is not with fasting. Jesus fasted. The apostles fasted, you'll see in the book of Acts. Every godly person you've ever heard of a story about probably fasted. The problem was not with fasting. The problem was with the heart. And how these Pharisees viewed religion and how they viewed God. Well, that's the context behind the question. Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? And now he's going to answer it. He answers it in the way that Jesus always loves to do, with parables. He answers it by throwing a bit of a curveball to them. He wants them to think deeply. He wants them to evaluate their own thoughts in their own hearts and why why are they doing what they're doing and so he gives them um, three different parables you could say but they all point to the same thing especially the last two so we'll handle the last two together and we'll quickly look at this first one so the answer is if you're taking notes number two here Jesus's disciples don't fast because his presence calls for feasting not fasting So, so the the point of this first parable that Jesus is going to give us, which is a wedding parable, is is the issue of presence. God's here. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? I can imagine the, the disciples of John are sitting there. I'm sure there are some Pharisees by, and they're all thinking, What is he talking about now? We didn't ask you about a wedding. We're asking you, why aren't you fasting like the rabbinical traditions have taught us? But Jesus is giving, he wants them to think. He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So the question came, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus says, because the bridegroom's here. Think about it for a minute. The whole point of fasting is to turn away from food and worldly pleasure for a short time to do what? To turn to God and to get into his presence, to try to, to try to lean into him, to hear his word more cr- clearly. So why would you fast when God's presence is right here, when Jesus is in front of them? You see how he's answering them? You don't fast when the bridegroom's there. He, he uses this illustration of a wedding, and it's really helpful. So Jude- Jewish weddings would last five to seven days. Can you imagine you think yours was expensive? <laughs> Can you imagine your family coming in five to seven days of feasting and partying and, and uh, dress? I'm sure the girls had a dress for every day. Um, for you dads who are already like me, thinking about that, have more than one daughter. Um, but anyway, so, so Jewish weddings are, are, are uh, five to seven day long ceremonies. And Jesus is, uh, really, um, this, what Jesus is doing is setting it up where you'll say, that's absurd. Of course you wouldn't do that. Uh, so Jesus tells this story, um, would the attendance of the bridegroom, so, so would the groomsmen, right? You know, you re- think back for a minute. You re- some of you guys, you know, you don't remember the wedding because your wife planned it all, and you were just like you showed up and did what you were told. But if you remember, I'll help you remember. You were standing there in a really um, t- tight tux, and you had some buddies. If you have any friends in life, there they were. You had a few of them behind you, and she probably picked those two. But anyway, um, you have some of your buddies, and they're groomsmen, right? Remember that? And Jesus' point in this is, they're coming for five to seven days, your buddies, whether it's your high school buddies, your college buddies, or your cousins or whoever it was, uh, or your brothers. They're coming and they're hanging out for a week, just partying and feasting and laughing and going to play golf. I mean, I'm sure they didn't play golf here, but that's what we did, I remember. And, and do, you know, playing some flag football, hanging out all week together. And Jesus' point is, what if one of your buddies came and said, hey, I, I'm just here to mourn? I'm just going to miss all our times, and I'm not going to eat anything. I'm not going to drink anything. I'm just here to be sad. I mean, when you say, like, you go back home then, wherever you've we're, we're celebrating, where there's a wedding that's about to happen. I'm still here. I'm with you. Um, to, though this week isn't the week to think about the sadness, it's the week to rejoice. And that's Jesus' point. How absurd that you would come to a celebration and mourn. And Jesus' point is my kingdom is bringing feasting, not fasting. My eye kingdom is bringing joy, not sadness. The groom is here. Grace has come. Freedom from sin. Eternal life. There's no need for fasting when God is in your very presence. You see, the new covenant is an administration of joy and not sorrow. That's what John Legge said. Very helpful quote. The new covenant, which is which is the new promises that Jesus is bringing. Another term for that is the gospel, the good news of the New Testament. The king, the new covenant is in administration of joy, not sorrow. And that's Jesus' point. How can we mourn at the highest point of feasting and joy, like at a wedding? Can you imagine the best man standing to give his toast, and he, and, and he says, all I'm going to do is miss him? He, he's, really, he's really just my best buddy and we had the best of times I'm just going to pour out this drink this, this uh, apple juice or whatever Baptists do I don't know what they do with the toast but the, the wine whatever it is I'm going to pour out this and we're not going to drink anything guys everybody just start crying he's just like what's wrong with him no, you do the toast. The, the, the best man does the toast because he says, These, this couple's wonderful, and my friend is wonderful. He has been good to me. He's always been there for me. I can trust him, and I joyfully give him to his wife. And now I look forward to spending time with them together, right, celebrating. But what if he just said, not me, I'm not going to drink, and I'm not going to eat anything. I'm just sad. This wedding stinks. I'm losing everything. Jesus' point is how absurd. No way. But then Jesus says in the latter part of verse 15, something that is very, 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 very sobering. Right in the same verse where he says, there should be no fasting right now because I'm here, he reminds everyone around him. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. The Greek word for taken away is snatched. You could translate it snatched, quickly taken. Jesus is alluding to the garden here. Jesus is saying, don't fast right now because I'm here, but there'll come a day you're going to mourn. Because he's warning his disciples that it's coming. He's been telling them that it's coming, that he will be taken away because Jesus knows he didn't just come to celebrate. Jesus did not come to earth for one big party and then just get us all loaded up on the party bus and take us all to heaven. That is not what Jesus' ministry was going to be on earth. He was going to come and proclaim a good news gospel, a new covenant of hope, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. But he would come to die on a cruel cross, to give his life as a ransom for many, the scriptures say. So he says, right now is not the time for fasting, but there will very soon be a time for fasting. And it is true that his apostles, once he was taken, they didn't eat very much. They were sitting in rooms waiting, fearful, at the same time hopeful that something would happen, but mourning nonetheless. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know exactly what I'm talking about. Let me give you a brief synopsis. Jesus did not just come to be a good teacher. He didn't just come to say, hey, dead religion's bad, so come have hope and life and, 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 and let's live together in harmony and, and let's bring tolerance and peace. He didn't just come to be like a, a Buddha or, or a Gandhi or a Gandhi. He wasn't just a good religious teacher. Jesus came to, yes, call people to peace and, yes, call people back to God and to proclaim a new kingdom and a new covenant, but he also did miracles. He healed the sick. He gave the blind sight. And then he laid his life down and allowed himself to be murdered. The scriptures say that he was innocent. He went to court, and Pontius Pilate washed his hands physically in front of the crowd and said, the man is innocent. I wash my hands of him. He didn't want to kill him. And so this innocent teacher who has come from God, born of a virgin, who healed the sick, gave hope to the poor, and preached a gospel of good news, this Jesus was nailed to a cross and bled and died. To pay the sin debt that you and I owe and that's the good news it doesn't end there they put him in a cold grave and roll a stone over it and seal it and three days later which is what we just celebrated at Easter he rose again the grave was empty and as if, and as if you think that some kind of um, hoax or some nice story The disciples who were hiding when he was taken in a room and were scared and fasting and praying, they are now standing in the marketplaces and in the temples and in front of the Pharisees laughing and preaching. Why? Because they had seen the risen Lord. Their sins had been forgiven and the covenant had been sealed. What a beautiful gospel this is. And so today, if you have never done this, you can turn away from your sins. And the Bible calls that repentance. Turn away from serving yourself. Turn away from living your life the way you want. And turn to Christ with faith and hope and belief. And the scriptures say when one does that, their sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Christ is, the biblical word, is imputed to you. It's given to you. It's put inside of you. One who wasn't righteous now becomes righteous. One who needed an inward transformation, who had a heart of stone, now is given a heart transplant by Christ through the Holy Spirit and has a heart of flesh put in there. And that's that inward transformation that takes place. Maybe you've heard it. John chapter 3, Jesus called it the new birth. Maybe you've heard it said conversion. Maybe you heard someone say in an old country church one day, I was born again. And that's what they're talking about. They saw Christ for who He was, King of kings and Lord of lords, the crucified one. And they repented of their sins and followed Him. And the Scriptures say, for those who do that, they will not be disappointed. He will receive them. None who come to Him, the Scriptures say, will be turned away. They will not be disappointed. Well, another reason that Jesus' disciples don't fast are these last two verses, and we're going to run through those pretty quickly. Actually, Rick did pray in his prayer that I would be brief or something. I don't remember how you said that. But we'll see if the Lord answers your prayer. The last last point here, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus' disciples don't fast because his ways are incompatible With old religion. Let me just say that real quick one more time. Jesus' disciples don't fast. This is how Jesus answers these Pharisees and and these disciples of John the Baptist. They don't fast because his ways are incompatible with the old rabbinical traditions, all right? This man made religious structure. And we'll look at those. But let me say this. The Pharisees were likely wondering why Jesus is focusing so much on forgiveness and faith rather than public fastings and public prayers. That's what they're wondering about. They know what he's saying and they know what he's doing and they don't like it and they don't agree with it. The Pharisees really want people to believe that outward acts are better than inward change and that the inside doesn't matter. And this is why they're asking the questions about the new teaching Jesus is giving, that it's about the heart And they rightly interpret that Jesus will not capitulate to the traditions of men. Jesus is the promised Messiah who is ushering in a new kingdom. And listen to this. He's ushering in a new kingdom that has an entire new way of believing, thinking, and living than what the Pharisees are used to. He is rocking their world. It's why they are the very ones who put the plan together to crucify him. They know what he is saying they know that he has denied the truthfulness of their dead religious acts that he is proclaiming a new kingdom a new way of believing a new way of thinking a new way of living now these next two parables that we're going to look at um, would give us um, they, they give us somewhat of a an idea of how joy and feasting are better than religious devotion Or religious acts. The new way of Christ doesn't jive with the dead religion of the Pharisees. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and worse tear results. Let me just give you a quick explanation of this. Some of you, if you grew up like me and you weren't too wealthy, um, when you put holes in your jeans, your mom put a patch on them. And that's because I I had two other brothers. We went through blue jeans. Like some of you go through Pop-Tarts or something on a daily basis. I mean, we were just burning through blue jeans. But we always, the knees of our jeans, every Sunday it was a big thing. Don't rip your knees. I mean, my parents would give us a lecture about what not to do. Because my mom was putting patches on. You can't buy pants every week, right? And so she'd put patches on there. And Jesus' point is, If you have old fabric that's been washed and dried and washed and dried, uh, then then it's already shrunk up as much as it's going to shrink. And so you can't take that and put brand new unshrunk cloth and sew it into that old cloth because what will happen is when you wash and dry it, it's going to tear away. And so Jesus is giving an, a, a parable here to say, uh, my new kingdom is incongruent, it, it's incompatible, it cannot be sown or added onto dead religious acts. You could say it this way, Jesus is not a patch that can be applied to your dead religious acts. I wonder if you've tried to do that. If you've just tried to take your life the way you like to live it and said, I'm going to add Jesus to this. I'm just going to patch my... My life's not great. There's some things that aren't going too good. But, you know, uh, Jesus sounds good. Sounds like he can maybe help me, maybe bring me some blessing, maybe do some stuff for me. So I tell you what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to take my life. I'm going to add Jesus. Just bring, bring him on. I'll take him. I, amen. I believe. And Jesus is saying, No. That's not going to work. I'm not a patch to be added to your dead heart and your dead religious ways. Jesus is a new garment. <laughs> he is altogether new for us. We'll see this again in the next illustration. Look at verse 17. Nor do people put new wine in old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined, and, and, but, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. So he tells another illustration. By the way, both of these would have made absolute immediate sense, like commercials in our minds um, for the, the hearers who are hearing this. These things would have both been common knowledge in the ancient world. And so basically how in the ancient world you couldn't just drink water wherever you go, and so wine was the common drink. They often mixed it with water. Um, the children would drink it as well. It was just it was something that, had, that was safe to drink. And so... Um, this is a common thing that, in a, any, that any, any home or any place of business or any kind of um, place where wine is being exchanged, they would have, um, le- well, what we would call leather, but they would just have a goat skin or what you an animal skin, and they would, they would tan it and, and get all the hair off of it, and they would sew the legs and, and sew the neck and make a nozzle in the neck, and then they would fill that with wine or with juice, with grape juice, and as the juice fermented and did what it was supposed to do, well, gases are released, right? Like you shake a two-liter bottle up and then you pop that lid and what's going to happen? Or you do like my boys do and drop a Mentos in there. And um, Anyway, okay, sidetrack. Um, you should try that if you haven't. Okay, so when the wine is in the wine skin, it's releasing g- gases in there and it's expanding this skin, right? And so the skin has elasticity. The, f- the, the fabric is stretching as the wine is doing what it's supposed to do. And Jesus' point is don't take an already stretched old wineskin and pour new wine in it because when it starts to expand that wineskin can't stretch anymore Uh, let me put it into modern day terms Uh, how many of you have blown up a water balloon yeah right i'm about to do it every summer you know my family and i have it out some water balloon fights but this is what it's so hard to do sometimes you put that little water balloon on the nozzle or on the hose and you you turn it on and you got to get it just right because if you go too fast what happens yeah, and you don't want to get that cuz you're you know people are coming at you and also you're trying to do it just right and get trying to do it fast and that that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is bringing a gospel of good news with resurrection power, with hope for life. He's healing people, he's bringing the dead back to life. He is a rushing water and he's saying you can't put me into dead religion. It can't contain me. I'm too much. I'm too powerful. Yeah. You could put it this way jesus is like a tsunami crashing upon the shores of a third world village nothing stands in its way and so jesus didn't come to put a patch on or to just put some new wine in the old ways of the pharisees it's altogether something new and fresh and hopeful now let me warn you here that we're not denying in any way and i've only got a couple minutes we've got to wrap this up We're not denying in any way that the Old Testament law is to be done away with. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, and the law was righteous and good. This isn't a grace versus law passage. This is a, a, a dead religion or a rabbinical tradition versus grace passage. He's saying the dead religion of the Pharisees will not work, and I won't add anything to it. Well, the second thing you'll see, and I'm going to be very... Brief here, but just to give you a sense of what's going on In this parable about the wine and the wineskins Jesus is telling um, the Pharisees and those who are listening to him That, that he's about inward transformation Pouring wine into the wineskin He wants them to picture it in their, in their minds That Jesus is bringing something that is inwardly transforming them It is not an outward conformity uh, You see, good deeds should precede uh, uh, should, or should be preceded by faith in Christ, right? I mean, any, any pagan, a mafia guy can give money to charity. It doesn't matter, right, if it's not coming from the heart. And so the, the point is in Scripture that when Jesus transforms a heart, then good deeds, they, they come from, they proceed from the faith. They burst forth from this heart that has been changed, and that's uh, this idea of compassion that Jesus is talking about in this series that we are in. Uh, the idea is that it isn't just, you know, I need to be compassionate. When I'm walking around town or I'm in my neighborhood, I need to be compassionate. That's what Rick's been teaching, and Bren and Justin's going to talk about it, and Scott was talking about we just We've got to be compassionate. Get your, boot, your compassionate bootstraps and pull them things tight. Let's all be compassionate. No. No, that's called legalism. That's not what we're saying. That's not what we're asking you to do. We're saying, look at the cross of Christ. Look at the compassion and mercy He has shown to us sinners. And go and give that compassion and mercy with a heart full of joy to other people. That's what we're saying Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 9. A new kingdom and a new covenant and a new word. Well, we've got to shut this down, but if time would allow, I would end by telling you that Jesus changes everything, is what this passage is about. Write in your margin of your Bible 2 Corinthians 5 17, or in your notes if you're taking them. Look that passage up later today or sometime this week. But the Apostle Paul writes that to the church at Corinth. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, he said, and no one ever argued with him about that because it was true. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a religious man of religious men. He said, according to the law, he was blameless. He had never broken one of their Pharisaical traditions. Every time he was supposed to fast, he did it. Every time he was supposed to obey some kind of little law they had made up, he did it. And he said, I count all of that as rubbish in Philippians chapter 3 all of it says rubbish compared to christ and what he has gained in christ and so boiling this down jesus is proclaiming in this passage the reason he doesn't fast is because he's proclaiming a new kingdom a new way of believing a new way of thinking a new way of living that will not mesh or jive with dead religion Listen to what one author said. The only life that can contain true righteousness is the life given by God when a person repents of his sin, trusts in Christ as Lord and Savior. And that is a life that can contain the righteousness of Christ. Let me close by saying, are you trusting in Christ alone today? Have you been trusting in dead religion? Today is the day you can turn away from that. Turn away from trying to earn God's favor and submit your life and your heart to Christ and say, God, if you can change this heart, do it. I'm open and willing and ready. Maybe you've already entered the new kingdom. Maybe you're living under this wonderful grace that has been described. I wonder if you're continuing to build your life on the bedrock of grace and mercy and compassion, the hope of Christ. And based on that bedrock, launching forward into your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, and speaking and showing the love of Christ. Listen, if you're here today and you have never made that decision and you want to talk with someone, Pastor Rick, myself, Brent, any of us would love to sit down with you for a few minutes and talk to you more about how you can make the decision to follow Christ in this way. But for the rest of us, let's pray. Let's, don't pull yourself out by your bootstraps right now. <laughs> don't do it. You're going to be tempted to do it. I'm going to go be compassionate to my waitress this afternoon. <laughs> I'm going to go be nice to the kids in the car. I'm going to be compassionate. No. Uh-uh. Contemplate the cross. Contemplate God's mercy. And then act accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so kind to us, Lord, this morning to give us this word of hope, this reminder of grace this wonderful um, example of compassion in the scriptures. And so, God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to hear this word and to obey it accordingly. Help us to to not just be a compassionate people, but to be a people moved by your compassion that causes us to be compassionate to others. And Lord, for the folks here who have yet to make a decision to follow you, I pray that you would work in their hearts and that you would draw them to your son and that they would know the mercy of Christ before they leave here today. We pray this in Jesus' name.